This is an ABC podcast. Everybody can relate to this. I've got family members, you know, caught at school with a vape. So this is happening. We know that school principals are talking about this. And when you walk past those tobacconist stores, you can see what Mark Butler calls the bubblegum variety vape aimed at the youth market. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government... It was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And PK, the countdown to budget night is well and truly on. The leaks are starting to flow a little faster. Budget night is next Tuesday. We're going to be joined by David Crow shortly. He's the chief political correspondent with The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald to talk about what we can expect to be in and out. But this week, PK, the RBA added to the pressure on the Treasurer by raising rates again after that pause last month. The 11th rise in a year. Rates now stand at 3.85%. To put that in a way that most of us can understand, that's an extra $1,400 a month on a mortgage of $600,000. That is a lot and a lot less money in people's pockets today than one year ago when inflation is stubbornly high, 7%. So will this rate rise factor into last-minute budget deliberations, do you think, PK? You know, the budget gets printed on the weekend. Do you think Jim Chalmers and Katie Gallagher got out the lead pencils on Tuesday night mm-hmm. to kind of add a bit more relief to the millions of Australians who are struggling right now? Now, on the big calls, my understanding is no. There's no sort of massive rewriting of the budget at the last minute. And I don't think the Treasurer really needed another rate rise to tell him that people are doing it hard. He was quick to acknowledge that this will be difficult for many Australians, as has been his mantra. Here he is. I think that the rate rise is really a a pretty stark, pretty brutal reminder uh, of the difficult economic conditions that we confront as we finalise the budget. There will be a cost of living package in the budget and it will prioritise the most vulnerable Australians. That's the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. So he's dropping lots of hints and in the last week or so they've been dropping more than just the hints, like some actually tangible things that will be in the budget, which are organised leaks. Uh, We'll talk about this more with David, but for instance, we know the cost of the 15% lift in wages for aged care workers, nurses and and all of the people who work in that sector will see their wages go up 15% from July the 1st. Now, we knew that they were going to have to deliver on that. That's a jump of almost $200 a week for an aged care nurse, and it's going to cost the budget $11.3 billion over four years. The other things that we know they'll do, promise childcare subsidy increase, the energy bill relief, and then you write rightly point out, like the pressure on the government payments to help people. We know that for single parents, they will get an increase $100 a week, essentially, when the definition is expanded for the single parent payment. So the youngest child no longer will be eight. It will be, my understanding, is 14. Job seeker is the one that this week blew up. We found out that those over 55 will get a boost in their job seeker. But my strong 
read on this? Is that that, yes, that was an unauthorised leak. Is that true? Well, my understanding is that that leak is true, but that it's not the full story. So the idea that this budget will shortchange the young isn't right. I can't tell you how it will help the young. I'd be looking in the areas of things like rent assistance, Fran. Yeah. Yeah. I understand too that, you know, it's a case of wait, there's more. As soon as Mark Riley on Channel 7 came out with that unauthorised leak suggesting the group over 55 on JobSeeker will get a boost. Critics came out. People said, no, that's not fair. That's not fair. A lot of young people came out and said, well, once again, you're helping older Australians. What about us? So that kind of piecemeal approach seemed to just bring out the critics. But yes, I think you're right. The government is going to do more on JobSeeker, I think, but it will be modest and it's not going to satisfy those who are calling for a significant hype to JobSeeker across the board, which, of course, as we've said before, includes many of their own people, many of their own government MPs. If you look at what we know so far, PK, there is a bit of a narrative, isn't it? A central theme will be a budget that focuses on women. Now, Scott Morrison in the past was you know, famously criticised for having a budget that didn't focus on women. Um, and that's when one budget where there are, seemed to be a lot of investment in building and construction and tax breaks for utes and things like that. This budget will be a different story. 85% of that aged care workforce that's going to get that boost to wages is female. We have an incredibly gendered care workforce in this country. Most of the people who are over 55 on JobSeeker are women. So that's another boost for women. The increase the single parent Payment goes mostly to women. So I think that's going to be a big part of the Treasurer's story on Tuesday night. But, you know, it's a little bit shakier, I think, than people thought it might be. There is a danger, as I mentioned, in singling out older women for job seeker. It can build resentment. Whereas, you know, this is an idea that came from the Women's Economic Equality Task Force to lift job seeker, not just for over 55s, also to lift the wages of the, the care workforce. But that task force was trying to do something across the board for women, not in a piece mere way. It was about getting the gender factors out of the economic situation and just, you know, treat women equally and lift them all equally across the board. So I think the the government has sort of put a dent in that narrative, but I'm sure that this will be one of the big headlines of the Treasurer's story. Um, we don't know all of it. There, there will be more. I think there'll be more on housing too. I think there has to be more on housing. But as I, as I suggested last week, I think that what we'll see in this budget is a longer, a midterm and, and longer term outlook. I think there'll be a timeline of help, if you like, for the most vulnerable, for people doing it tough now, laying out a strategy to fulfil the Prime Minister's pledge of no one left behind. So you can say, look, we're doing it. We want to do it. We have a plan to do it, but responsibly we can't do it all right now. So I think that will be a big part of the narrative we hear from Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer, the Prime Minister and, of course, Katie Gallagher. Don't forget why they want to do that. They have also been very, very keen to restore their battered in the past reputation as better economic managers or, or as strong economic managers. So this is a... It's always a weak point for a Labor government. And yet they've been rebuilding it, right? If you look at some of the, the polling, they actually have really gathered a pace here where people are trusting them with the economy, right? So they, they don't want to tarnish that by looking like they have no fiscal discipline. And so that's what I think is guiding some of these decisions as well, the sort of broader idea that they have to do it responsibly. 
well, let's talk about this because they're going to get a big windfall this year from resources, boom times for resources, and a lot of money from tax receipts because we have such low unemployment at the moment. There's more people in the workforce and that boosts the government coffers. These are one-off boosts. These are going to disappear in a couple of years, but we're going to get close to surplus, according to some, which would you know, seem miraculous compared to we were a year or two ago. So on the one hand, there's the optics of the Treasury with all this money sort of raining down on the government right now, but they're trying to hold back and look responsible and, and not just hand all that out again. It's tricky to manage that perception, isn't it? Huge um, and tricky to, to manage that perception, Fran. I mean, this is, I think, one of the hardest budgets that I've seen a government have to craft. And I know there's been other hard times, but this one is a particularly peculiar budget to craft because of inflation and yet high expectations on this new Labor government. Politically and economically, I think a lot of collisions are happening here. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think GFC budgets were very hard to manage. The Labor government trying to manage those, that was pretty tough. We come to this off the, you know, the strange circumstances contributing are we come off the pandemic where we had so much spending, so we have so much debt. That's a major consideration, you know, global inflation. And also we have underinvested. Uh, one of those, I think, is housing. We're seeing that come to roost now. Housing policy has been sort of let drift, but also Medicare. And we're going to talk about Mark Butler and the health minister gave a major speech. The Labor government came to power this time saying Medicare basically is, is broken. It, it was designed for the health system 40 years ago and nothing much has changed since and something needs to change. That's going to require money being spent but also money being found from within it and then we've got the pressures of the NDIS. So there's a lot of things this government is trying to wrangle right now which make it very tricky and, yeah, I, I think you, you are right that coming off the pandemic where the growth is so low still, there's a lot of very competing parts to this. Sure, uh, should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. David Crow is Chief Political Correspondent with The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Welcome to the party room. Great to be back. I'm enjoying my non-alcoholic drink here, <laughs> getting ready for a uh, sober approach to the budget. Love it. Times have changed, haven't they, David? Um, yeah. David, we, we've been talking about the budget and we will talk with you about it. But the other big story this week was the $234 million package the government announced um, for stamping out vaping. The health minister, Mark Butler, really came out swinging at Big Tobacco in his address. Here he is. Big Tobacco has taken another addictive product wrapped it in shiny packaging, added sweet flavours to create a new generation of nicotine addicts. That was Health Minister Mark Butler at the National Press Club. David, you were presiding over that speech. I mean, this is a very big issue, isn't it? The fact of the matter is that those who are producing and selling and promoting vapes completely outran those who are making policies and compliance measures to try and contain them. And the result is our kids are vaping at very scary and unhealthy rates. And the whole industry has taken off in a way that was not meant to happen in the first place. It was meant to be a product prescribed by chemists, pharmaceutical product to get people off nicotine. And instead, as Mark Butler pointed out, it's turned into a product to get kids into nicotine. So it's a Huge public policy failure when you look at the big picture, and it's working. I mean, because the, the minister told us one statistic that really set me back on my heels, which is that the one group where smoking rates are going up at the moment in this country is those under 25. Now, that is heartbreaking. 
especially when you put it in the context of reforms from a decade ago when the former health minister, Nicola Roxon, brought in plain packaging for cigarette packs at substantial cost in terms of just the sheer effort to get the reform done and the threat of legal action. Mm. And that's had an impact. Now that can be undone by the rapid adoption of vapes. And I see this as a huge issue. I think it's got much more traction in the community than a lot of the health funding stories that we're writing about, because everybody can relate to this. I've got family members, you know, caught at school with a vape. So this is happening. We know that school principals are talking about this. And when you walk past those tobacconist stores, which are popping up everywhere, they're the new 7-Eleven corner store. Uh, you can see what Mark Butler calls the bubblegum variety vape mm. aimed at the youth market. The packaging on them often says, you know, nicotine free, but when most of them are tested, they are not nicotine free at all. So it's completely mm. false advertising and they're effectively pushing nicotine onto kids because kids think they're safer than cigarettes. And when some of this was aired in recent months, we knew that the government wanted to do something about it. And Mark Butler's been talking about it for some time. And to his credit, the previous health minister, Greg Hunt, also wanted to do something about vapes and did what he could, but faced resistance. But there was a school of thought that said, well, look, why aren't they going to increase the taxes on these products, allow them to be sold, but raise some revenue from it? Instead, they've come at it from a different approach, which is to spend money on combating the problem. It's close to a zero tolerance. They're not criminalising behaviour by people who use vapes, but they are going to have sanctions against those who sell these products without, you know, the proper authority, i.e. for medicinal purposes. And that's going to require a major effort, and it's $200 million or more in spending over four years. And I think, you know, some of the details will emerge over time because Mark Butler is going to need state and territory authorities to police this. Mm. And it's not clear yet whether they will make it, for instance, a criminal offence for a corner store to sell vapes to an underage customer. It could end up that way, but they actually have to get the agreement at a national level about how hard the sanctions are going to be. Look, it's not just vaping that the government has promised to clamp down on either. They've also announced that they'll increase the tax on tobacco. It's set to go up 5% for three years, kicking off in September. That's an additional $3.3 billion in the budget. Will the savings be reinvested in health? And if so, where? We're seeing the health budget emerging almost day by day. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago that Mark Butler was talking about $2.2 billion in investment in new measures in the budget in the health portfolio. Clearly, that could be funded by $3.3 billion in additional revenue, although he doesn't say that all of that $3.3 billion will go straight back into Medicare. Excise is actually more of a treasury item. So there's going to be some wrangling over how that works. But I still see Medicare as being fundamental to this budget because Mark Butler says it's in the worst state it's been in 40 years. What we haven't seen yet is a hint on where they're going to go with the Medicare rebate. Didn't we get a hint at the press club? I mean, the, the minister talked about that strengthening Medicare report and, you know, that was criticised by many for not having details in it. But he kept on saying how the coalition government basically undermined Medicare and bulk billing by mm. keeping the Medicare rebate for doctors fixed for six years. And that was a clear hint, wasn't it, that we're going to see at least an initial jump in the Medicare rebate and maybe a, a longer term plan. Another one, I think there's going to be a lot of this in this budget. The government's setting out medium to long term plan for lifting payments. That was what I took from him. On his own rhetoric then, I suppose, you're right, Fran, on his own rhetoric, there should be an increase in the Medicare rebate. I think what it's got to come with is a measure, a system to make sure that it actually flows through to households. 
and I see it as being part of a wider message about the cost of living in the budget because they want to make sure that all these things are not just sucked up by the service providers, in the case of Medicare and the doctors, but actually flow through to the patient, to the Mm. customer. If they can do that, then I think they've got a good message on the cost of living on Tuesday, as well as a good message on health. Look, health is just one of the many pressures facing the budget. There has been a substantial push, which we talked about a little earlier, just Fran and I, about the increase to the job seeker payment. We've we've been talking about that speculation really for several weeks, but it's really intensified. But it's only for those over 55. Now, Independent Senator David Pocock says that's even less generous to the unemployed than the Morrison government was during, obviously, the pandemic. Hmm. Ouch. I thought that was a bit of an ouch moment. David, is it just that? Is that all they're going to do, really? That's just going to create intergenerational rage. I wish I had the inside running on exactly what they're going to do on JobSeeker because it's been the subject of so much debate. I think there's more to it. I see it as being unlikely that they would just say to young people, there's nothing in it for you. Mm. But I have talked to people in the government who believe very strongly that there is a shortage of workers in a lot of industries and they don't want to do anything that discourages work. And I know that's a message that just infuriates so many people who want to see an increase in job seeker. But what I'm trying to do here is pass on, you know, what I hear, which is a reluctance to, to be very generous with job seeker. I know that there are Labor MPs who are speaking up on this maybe they'll have an impact. Certainly the the news of the over 55s happened after those backbenchers started speaking up. But I think most of the budget is decided now. The expenditure review committee has basically finalised it. There aren't too many days before they've got to print the budget. And I don't see a sign of a a major generous move on JobSeeker. For instance, today we've seen more money going into aged care Mm. wages. And I think that does reflect where the government sees the priorities, increasing wages for people who are doing that aged care work. What about housing? I mean, you look around and housing, I think, is the real pinch point for so many Australians at the moment, either because people are most disadvantaged, um, can't afford any housing at all. There's nothing in the rental market they can afford, let alone the hope or the dream of ever buying a house. But also the people who are have jobs and are renting as rents have gone up more than 10% across the nation over the year. And then there's the increased interest rates, which is causing pain for, for mortgage holders. So everywhere you look, housing is a point of pain. It's inconceivable to me the government won't have something to offer, particularly perhaps for those facing rental stress as part of their cost of living package. And I understand there is something in there, but I don't know what it is. Do you have any sense of where the government might be giving some help here and whether some of that one-off revenue the government's going to see flowing into its coffers this year and next might be of any use here? I think that Commonwealth Rent Assistance is the rumoured change where they can offer people who are struggling to pay rent more help. And there were some comments from Treasurer Jim Chalmers just a couple of days ago where he said there's substantial upward pressure on rents. He's talking about a substantial cost of living package. It's a pretty logical area for them to do something, especially when they're under attack from the Greens and some of the crossbenchers in the Senate on their housing package. It's expensive and across the board increase. And it also does that thing of, you know, you put up rental assistance and then rents go up, you know, you chase that pattern too. So it's problematic, isn't it? Well, they also announced some tax changes on the bill to rent scheme and depreciation changes. Mm. And they're extremely pointy-ended tax changes, Mm. but they should have the impact of encouraging incentives to build more homes. So I think the answer is on two sides. 
building supply, but also helping out people who are struggling. But getting back to um, the big picture, they can't throw too much money at all these things because the view from economists is that this cannot be an expansionary budget. Inflation's at 7%. So there is a constraint on what the government can do. If it spends too much money, it will be criticised by economists for working against the Reserve Bank and for fueling inflation at the very worst time. And for all the criticism of the government on social policy that we've heard in the last couple of weeks, I think a much more dangerous outcome for Jim Chalmers and for Anthony Albanese is if the day after the budget, they are told by economists that they're going to increase inflation. So that's the tightrope they're walking. Okay, and now there's the housing fund too, that $10 billion housing fund. This week they got some some good news. The government, Jackie Lambie, backs it. So does, of course, her other senator, um, Tammy Tyrrell. They got a bit of a deal where, you know, there's a flaw in terms of uh, how many homes are to be built. But the independent senator, David Pocock, told us on breakfast that, you know, he's still not happy. He will grudgingly vote for it, but he's not happy. Here he is. I'm not going to stand in the way of a $10 billion fund, but I do expect a government to take on board advice from experts around indexing a fund or allowing it to disperse more when it returns more. And that isn't the case in this instance. Mm. Mm. There I am. David, <laughs> David, are they going to get a deal? The Greens aren't enthusiastic. I don't think a deal looks that close. And I think the politics suggests that there's no incentive or not enough incentive yet for on either side to do a deal. And I'm not talking about the Jackie Lambie network. They're, they're happy with this outcome. Anthony Albanese thinks he can stick to his guns on the $10 billion fund, while Adam Band is absolutely determined to make the point that more is needed because he's appealing to those who can't get into the housing market or are struggling with rents. So both are appealing to a different constituency. On policy grounds, I think you would say that the $10 billion fund puts money into the markets, uses those earnings to then invest in housing. If you want more homes, you could expand that fund. But there's no sign that the government is willing to turn the $10 billion fund into a $15 billion or a $20 billion well, fund. Well, the government says they have to be careful yeah. of that because, you know, when the coalition um, gave us Home Builder during the pandemic, that was mentioned by the Reserve Bank Governor Phil Lowe as, you know, one of the things that sort of heated the market because it sucked up all the building resources, it lifted building costs and it was contributed to inflation. So that's one of the reasons why they say they've settled at that point. And building costs are going up at the moment. They're part of inflation and it's something they've got to be very careful with. The hardest thing to do is actually change the rules to increase supply, change the planning rules. That's actually a subject of discussion between Canberra and the states, but it's a very slow process. I think Anthony Albanese, just to talk the politics, not the policy, Anthony Albanese would want the Greens to blink. And I think he's going to take it as far as he can to try and get mm. the Greens to blink. Mm. Yeah, he's had them blinking a few times, though. Mm. Um, you, you know, how blinky can you get? <laughs> all right. In terms of the opposition positioning on all these big budget challenges, Peter Dutton this week called for work for the doll to be reinstated. Let's take a listen. There is a great argument for bringing back uh, work for the doll and other programs that say to people, you're unemployed, you're able to work, there's work out there, so why aren't you in a job? And that was the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, on 2GB. Well, David, the Treasurer was quick to point out that uh, working for JobSeeker is a program that wasn't abolished. It's been there. What's this all about then from Peter Dutton? Is it just sort of nostalgia for the 2000s under the Howard government? I think it's actually beside the point at the moment. The debate is not about a work for the doll scheme. The debate is about the level of JobSeeker and the outlook for getting 
more people into work when there are signs of job shortages around the economy. And I think that's what the government's thinking about it. It's trying to get outcomes where they can be skilled up and they can go into useful work, not just for the sake of it, so they earn a wage and pay tax. I mean, that's the economic outcome the government is chasing here, to get more people into work and more people earning so that they can pay income tax. That's the big picture economically. They're still doing a fair bit on skills, on TAFE, and I think that hasn't been given much attention in the last couple of weeks in the job seeker debate, but I think uh, they've got to do more in the budget on that when we can see the worker shortages around the economy. Hey, David, just before we go, uh, I think we should note that as we speak here on the podcast, the Prime Minister is in the UK ahead of the coronation of King Charles on Saturday. Despite being such a staunch Republican, Anthony Albanese has said that he will accept the invitation to pledge his allegiance to the King during the ceremony. It's also reported that he's actually personally invited King Charles to Australia. He did that when they met privately, apparently. That's not confirmed. But the King, it's also reported, is worried he won't be welcome. How, how does all this work, a royal visit, should it happen, with a Prime Minister who's a staunch Republican? How does that play out? He's treading a fine line, isn't he? Because he is avowedly a, a Republican. He wants to replace the monarchy, in Australia that is. And yet at the same time, all his messaging is about the fact that he accepts the institutions as they operate in Australia. I actually think that that's a fairly mature approach to take to the issue. Rather than go to London and score cheap points on the Republic, acknowledge the outcome of the 1999 referendum, which is that the arrangements we have now were not changed by a popular vote, and he works within those institutions. He takes the oath at the coronation in the same way he takes the oath every time a new parliament sits in Canberra. I'm not sure whether the complexity of that message or the nuance of that message will carry through to the electorate, but I do think that it's a fairly mature approach to take to a complicated issue. One thing that strikes me is that he's not willing to offer any hint that Mm. he will pursue a republic in a future term. He just doesn't want to go there. Every time he's asked about that, he emphasises the priority is on the Indigenous voice, And he's not going to discuss what he might do in a second term, for instance, to put a republic on the agenda. And that's the that's the big mystery. He's got a referendum to win. That's why he's got a big referendum to win. And it's a close one. David, always love picking your brain. Can't wait to see you in the lockup. (laughs) Thank you both. Great to talk. Thanks, David. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the leader of the opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. And we've got a question from Suzanne who asks, the PM is refusing to abandon the Stage 3 tax cuts despite their broad unpopularity. They are due to take effect from the 1st of July next year. How do you think they will manage this issue or do you think they'll go ahead and implement them in full as legislated. Do you think next year's budget is likely to defer them until after the election? Now, I'm on the record many times as having, as having said that I don't think there's any way these stage three tax cuts will go ahead in full. They will be somehow re-engineered or deferred or wound back a bit. You know, be mindful of the fact, I think it's $17 billion that goes in that this cost of the budget in the first year alone of these tax cuts. And overall, it's, you know, close to three hundred billion dollars over the ten years. So it's a lot of money. I still think it's going to be too tempting, but 
um, you know, people keep telling me that the, there's no way the Prime Minister will break his word on this and in opposition they voted for the tax cuts. So that is the pledge the Prime Minister was asked during the election campaign, will you implement them in full? He says he will. I'm not sure how they get around this. I think it will involve somehow going to the election, but I don't think they'll defer them. I think they'll probably have to run them out until that point, but I I still am in the cart that there'll be a re-engineering. Though I did notice that um, Ken Henry, the former head of Treasurer, has said that he thinks that they should implement these tax cuts in full. It's just that they should also put in some new revenue measures and make changes to the tax system overall to better shape our tax system. I think it's in balance. I really think that they're trying to read the room still on where they can go. I think they would love to re-engineer them, but I don't think they're there yet. Let's face it, they would like to get their hands on that bucket of cash. That's what they would like. Yep, that's the truth. But you know what? There's politics and they're they're scared of the uh, consequences if they are to change course. They are Mm. really scared of that. All right. Well, that's it from the party room this week. Send in your questions. We love getting them. We are particularly fond of receiving them as voice notes. No offence, Suzanne. We loved your question too. <laughs> but, you know, you can email your voice note into the party room at abc.net.au. We'll put that email in the show notes in case you missed it. Remember, follow the party room on the ABC Listen app. You'll never miss an episode. We'll be back in your feeds next week. See you, Fran. See you, PK. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 